for a lot of years, I've wanted to start a message on this story in the Bible with that song. So, now I've done it. <laughs> hey, friends, dream big. Dream big, and one day, one day, maybe, maybe you'll achieve them. Oh, my gosh. So, we're, um, we're trying to balance some of our heaviness of the topics that we're leaning into during this uh, Lent season um, with, some, with some fun and joy uh, at, at the same time. But, uh, but this morning, we're going to uh, lean into a really well-known story in the scriptures, and I'm going to remind you if you are kind of, just to catch you up, uh, but also if you haven't been around for a week or two, that we are exploring during the season of Lent the healing stories of Jesus in the Gospels, and how those healing stories might speak to us in different ways today, about the way that God wants to bring wholeness to the world, okay? And so we're using these stories as a metaphor and springboard for the character of God today, all right? So, so it's not apples to apples, and we don't intend it to be, all right? Um, while we don't ever shut the door on the way that God works, we, we don't say that God can or can't do these things or this or that. We do understand that when Jesus came, a, a large part of what he was doing was to help symbolize what God wanted to do on a grand scale in individual lives. So when Jesus healed people, and, and brought wholeness to their bodies, we know that there were other people who still were sick in the land and in the world, and that doesn't need to send us spiraling. Um, but what we remember is when Jesus had inter- uh, any opportunities for interaction with people, the end result, if they were open and willing, was always wholeness. It was always growth. It was always transformation. And so the different ways that that happened, when we look at the, when Jesus was here physically and the things that Jesus did, they become a glimpse into what God can do today for us in new ways and what God does in us. All right, so that's, it's not a disclaimer, but it's, it's foundational for, um, for leaning into this. So uh, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to take a look at a story in Mark in chapter 2, and uh, and. It's really fun, and it's interesting, and it's, it's different from a lot of Jesus' other healing stories, part of which, uh, because we get almost no information on the guy that gets healed, almost nothing. He's just kind of like a, he's there, but it's not really about that moment. And so, or it is about the moment, but it's not about him and his words or his story as much. So, uh, so I want to catch you up here. And then we're going to launch right in. Sometimes I try to like do some like teaser to make sure that you care about what we're about to talk about, uh, like topically, you know, like that it has to impact your life. But I'm just going to trust that this is a, a, such a compelling story that when we lean into it, it's going to take us right there. And part of that is because I want to make sure we have time for dialogue at the end. So um, no extra fat. All right. So here's what's happened up to this point in Mark. All right. There's been no conflict yet in the story of Mark, real early on with Jesus, all right? Jesus has come onto the scene. Uh, he's been baptized. He's gone into the desert. He's come out. He's called disciples, and he's begun healing people, all right? And the healing, this is all miraculous healings. And, and when Jesus is healing people, he's doing something that only a powerful prophet could do, all right? And that's how he is understood to be at this point. Uh, but that's it. No run-ins with the authorities yet. No conflict or accusations, um, although there's been some things that could create that, but we're seeing tension already in the, in the early chapters of Mark. We're seeing tension build, all right? But he's going around, he's healing people, and he's letting them know that God's kingdom is near, all right? And everybody loves it. 
Everybody is all into this. There's joy in the message. There's joy in the miracles. But the movement begins to grow really unexpectedly, like way bigger than it was intended to go at this time. And we saw this uh, last, last week. Remember when Jesus heals a leper? And we talked about like what God wants to do in our numbness. Well, the interesting thing about, if you remember the end of that story, Jesus tells the guy, don't, go to, don't, don't tell anyone about this. Just go and rejoin your community. And the guy doesn't listen. And he goes out and he, he tells everybody about it. And as a result, people just start flocking toward Jesus so much that we're told that he can't go into towns anymore. So he has to go out to the hillsides alone and with smaller groups. And some people follow him, whatever. But so, so that's the, the thing that's happening. That's the precursor. So when we get to this story, Jesus once again enters a town a few days later. Okay? But this is why we see what's about to happen with the crowds. All right? So, uh, oh, but also in the midst of this, because Jesus is too big of a deal, he's creating a stir among the religious elite, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders. And they are concerned right? Because Jesus isn't following a lot of the protocols of religious leaders. And even if they believe Jesus is a prophet, prophets are always troublemakers. Like, like, you know how people love to look back on the role of prophets and be like, wow, how great. But in their real time, nobody likes a prophet that stands for the status quo. And so, so um, each of these people, Moses, you know, uh, Elijah, all of them were troublemakers in their own right in this journey, but Jesus is being seen as a threat to the system, okay? So that's, that's what's happening, all right? So the, the authorities, they start to get interested, and they start to decide that they want to check things out a little bit closer for themselves. So in Mark 2, here we go, and uh, Brian, you can follow along with me here. Uh, so we start a few days later. This is a few days after Jesus has, has needed to leave town, let things simmer. When Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home here we go. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. All right. Some men came. So, so we've just got the setup. Um, we've got the setup uh, right here. Some men came. There's this big, big crowd. Everybody wants to hear Jesus talk. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. So just imagine, it's a a, a bit of an entourage here, right? Carried by four of them. Four people, one on each side. Maybe you've got the old, you know, like the the beams, but maybe he's on his mat, so maybe they're just literally like holding a corner of the mat, almost like a hammock. And they're walking with him, bringing him toward Jesus. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, just hold it right there because I don't want to finish that sentence yet. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd. Oh my goodness. How often? Just sit with that sentence. How often are people hindered from encountering Jesus because of the crowd around him? How often media representations, the ones shouting the loudest, the assumptions, the power grabs that give a false representation of Jesus, the sexism, the racism, the homophobia, the ableism that has been done in the name of, of Jesus that ends up making people feel like Jesus is inaccessible to them. Even if it's not true, <laughs> it makes them feel like they are on the outside looking in, especially to the buildings that hold God. These are the things that keep people on the edges. And it's relevant in so many ways, this first little sentence 
could not get to him because of the crowd. It's relevant to so many ways, but particularly toward marginalized groups of people, people who've been forced to stay on the outside of the building. But I want you to notice one thing about these friends. The four friends, and we're going to assume they're friends. They're mentioned as friends, uh, depending on one translation in one of the Gospels. Otherwise, we're just told that they're four men. Uh, but, but I want you to notice that the friends who were able to bring this man to Jesus were able to do so because they had at least some level of connection to his life. There was at least some connection between people that would eventually open the door in new ways for encountering Jesus. So I want to ask us, even as we get into this, how involved are we in the lives of each other who may feel like they're on the outside? In one way or another, in any number of ways, how can we move together toward Jesus? How can we together help each other find healing? Because that's the journey that's happening. Okay, so... Some men came, bringing a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, here's what happens next. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the man, lowered the mat that the man was lying on. This is the best. So I I just want you just to imagine this moment. Jesus here in the middle of a small, small house that is packed to the brim and a village like, I mean, Nazareth at the time. The village of Nazareth had like 200, 250 to 300 people. So like we're, when, when we talk about towns, we're talking small. If you look right now and see where, um, where uh, Magdala and Capernaum and Tiberias and all of these places are, they're all within two miles of each other, but they're called their own towns, okay? Or five miles of each other. So, so be aware that when we're talking about crowds, the whole, the whole town pretty much could have been there, Right? But anyway, so Jesus is teaching, and uh, I, I am not shy about the fact that I get distracted really easily, but not by your, because we've talked about that. If you need to use your hands, it's great. It doesn't distract me. But, I, but my kids distract me easily, even though my kids are growing up. Um, they used to. I get very easily distracted by movement or sounds. If I'm trying to work on my message, I have a home office. I keep my, um, I, I'm, it's in the corner of our bedroom right now, my whole desk situation. So I keep the door shut. Um, I put a towel on the base of the door because there's a crack underneath the door. And then I put these giant mower headphones on. Um, and it still doesn't work half the time if there's anybody else in the house. But I cannot imagine Jesus trying to teach about the kingdom. And all of a sudden, this stuff just starts like sprinkling on his shoulders, right? Uh, and, and like, what is going on? And then, and then the big question comes, do I stop? Or do I keep going? Like, do you ignore it? Like, what's appropriate in this moment? So I don't know what Jesus was thinking um, at the time. But the imagery is rich. It should make us think and enter into this very, very kind of organic, earthy experience. Literally organic, earthy. Uh, Sometimes when we think about roofs and houses, we think about kind of like either like African huts or uh, like terracotta kind of big clay, you know, uh, tiles, especially because one of the interpretations, one of the language things says they remove the tiles, but that's not what you think of when, when we think of tiles. So here's actually a, uh, a picture of, um, of a village nearby that was unearthed and then recreated based on everything that's, that's been seen um, near Capernaum. And so what you will have is you will have kind of um, uh, unhewn logs that are used as rafters and then branches and saplings that, that offer cross support. And then the top is overlaid with like really tight-packed clay. 
So this, these are well-built things, partly because people would typically go up onto the roof. You would store things up there because you didn't have a lot of space. Um, but it was, it was used for all sorts of things. And so, um, so, yeah, the terracotta roof tiles, they weren't known in rural Galilean villages till, uh, during the first century till way later in the Byzantine era. Uh, so anyways, this is what you've got. So you probably can't even fit people through those two rafters. So you're talking about not just lifting off, you know, a hole, but if you're talking about a guy, you're talking about removing the beams as well. This is a major project, all right? And it's really good for us to understand. And now a lot of people think that two of these four were possibly Simon and and Andrew, okay? Because then they would have been like, it's their house, and they would have taken responsibility because it deals with one of the moral complexities of this story of like, did someone really like do, because then someone takes it, yeah, like um, defacing, you know, someone else's property for Jesus. And, and uh, so the question is like, was that okay or was that really unkind or whatever? But so some people try to synthesize it by, by saying maybe it was theirs. But either way, if, they were, if it was done in the character of Jesus, we know that it was going to take some major work afterwards. To, to fix it all back up. We'll talk about that in a second. So this guy gets lowered down. All of a sudden, he is right in front of Jesus. And we don't know how, it had to be messy. There was no way that this was clean and like smooth. Like I imagine people like almost slipping or someone having to come up and, and hold him from the underside and lower him back down. I, I could just imagine this thing caused a major ruckus in, in the, entire, the entire situation, just brought everything to a halt. <sighs> But here's what we find out in verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now in this little sentence, there's a whole lot going on. Two particular things. The first one that's very surprising is it says when Jesus saw their faith. This is one of the only stories, there's only one other story in the Gospels, where Jesus sees somebody else's faith and says, because of that, I am drawn to move toward someone else in a new way, compassionately, toward healing. So, so Jesus sees their faith, the faith of this group of, of men, and says, that is profound. And it moves him. And it stirs him. But then, when he looks at the guy, he, and this, this creates all sorts of problems, friends. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Which, can we just name it, totally plays into the fact that, like, well, if you're sick, it's just because you're too sinful. Right? Like, stop sinning, and you'll be healthy. What did you do to displease God that brought that X, Y, Z? Now, you know that we don't subscribe to that. But here's the interesting thing. Neither does Jesus. Uh, so, so we're going to talk about why he says a statement like that. Uh, next up, some teachers of the law were sitting thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Okay, so they hear this. They see what he says. Your sins are forgiven. This moment of, of beauty and cleansing, and they get all freaked out. They, no one can do that. Someone can proclaim that someone has been forgiven. The priests could proclaim that someone has been forgiven, but the priests themselves could not forgive. They could just name the fact that once the sacrifices had been made, once repentance had occurred, that yes, God does accept them. But Jesus just goes right out and says this. So then he looks at them, and immediately it says, Jesus knew in his spirit what, was in, what they were thinking in their hearts. I like it's what they were thinking in their hearts. <laughs> Not just their minds. He knows that there's something in there that they're, that they're um, opposed to. And he says to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, 
Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Now, Jesus says, which is easier to say? <laughs> like, like what's, what's easier? It's, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? Because it's, like, totally invisible. So if you say your sins are forgiven, it's like, okay, no one can tell. So Jesus is like, you're upset about this. You're upset about the fact that I, I'm forgiving this guy's sins. Oh, well, which, which is easier, to just make a statement like that? Or to actually heal somebody right in front of you. He says, but so that you might know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. I'm assuming I'm getting this right. Um, I didn't actually memorize it. Yeah. Uh, He says to him, get up. Get up. Take your mat and go home. What we were expecting to hear from the beginning. So Jesus is very clear about the fact that, that, listen, he is taking the opportunity to challenge the religious elite and to say, listen, I am not going to play by your games. I am going to bring radical grace and radical healing at the same time. But they are not, they're not linked. He used it as an object lesson to make clear that he had authority to do both. That he was on the earth not just to touch people and help them walk. That he was on the earth to bring complete wholeness, complete uh, forgiveness, complete freedom. And so he uses this opportunity to do so. So don't ever miss the point, all right? So when he says that, he says to the man, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. Now everyone, uh, when, when you're talking about all the people, the way Mark writes, he's never including the religious folks in that. So they're not as impressed. So when he says, uh, this amazed everyone, all the people are like the commoners. <laughs> so it's all the people, and then it's the leaders of the law. Uh, so, so when he says all the people, you've got a bunch of people celebrating God's goodness and you've got a bunch of people sitting there skeptical, saying what, tapping their shoes, tapping their feet, saying this guy's dangerous. Completely missing the beauty of the moment. All right, so here we go. Um, I love, we, I want to go back to these guys because I think it's really, really important as we think about God's methods of Um, bringing healing in our world today, okay? Uh, I want you to think about the attitude of these men on their way over to the house that Jesus was in. I want you to think about them looking around and saying, you know what, we've got to remove any barriers possible to you encountering, to you you meeting Jesus. We've got to do whatever we we need to do. Even if it costs me something, I want to participate in your access in your healing. And so, so this, this moment, you know, and, and, and I believe you can walk away a different person. <laughs> I believe you can walk away. <gasps> but I believe you can walk away a different person from encountering Jesus. Now, as we walk into this for a moment, I want to give a disclaimer. Because anytime we talk about being advocates, which we're about to talk about for others, um, this is not about fixing people. This is not about saving people ourselves. The Savior complex is problematic in so many ways and has been used within the church to do a lot of damage. This is also not just about living in in false hope or assumptions, right? And it's not about us holding ourselves up and above other people. And we're going to get to that in a second. It's about understanding that we are not alone on the faith journey and that Jesus is impacted by the community witness that exists. Think about that. You're not alone alone. And Jesus is moved by the witness of their, of them, of the community that is around various people at our times of need. Uh, 
it's so beautiful that nobody gets singled out. It's the witness of the friends as a community together. I think that's just so important. If we are genuinely willing to be advocates for healing for those around us, for those we love, if we genuinely have faith in God's work in other people, my goodness, that makes a huge difference in everything, in how we look at life, in how we look at them, and mysteriously, in God's heart. God gets moved by our love and care and advocacy for others. There's something, there's something amazing, but I'm going to refuse to close the door on exactly how mysterious that is. Like, let me just say that in this story, their advocacy, their willingness to show up for each other, for him, was a part of the healing journey that got opened. So advocacy like this, I think there's three different things that, can, um, that, that are important. And the first one, just important to enable an openness to transformation together, all right? The first one is an attitude of hope, all right? An attitude of hope is super countercultural in our world these days as it pertains to how we look at other people, all right? Um, An attitude of hope helps us not to write people off when we see that they're not who we want them to be. An attitude of hope um, helps us accept people for who they are and who they are becoming, not who they were. All right? An attitude of hope helps us resist labels. You don't know what God will do in other people, so don't decide what he won't do. Okay? Um, But you want to be here for it. I don't know what God might do, but I want to be here for it. Uh, There's something there when we want to participate in God's ongoing growth in each other. It's a fine line, right? Because hope, this, hope like this has to occur outside of the need to control, fix, or force. It has to. And so, so I know that some of you, you've got all sorts of landmines that you're like carefully walking around when we talk about this, and that's okay. Those are good. But don't avoid the path just because there might be some landmines that we need to avoid along the way. Um, There is something so powerful in a community that is grounded on hope for each other. Uh, We we sometimes talk about the the concept of borrowing each other's faith. I don't know if you've been around long enough to hear us talk about that. But but, um, our our faith fluctuates. Our sensitivity to to God often comes and goes. And we're just like, oh, I'm just kind of in like a bleh time. And and sometimes like, I'm so far away from God, I guess I'm in crisis, whatever. Sometimes what we need to remember is that we can simply borrow each other's faith during hard, hard moments. Like, we can just lean on each other and say, I do not have it all together right now, but can we just journey together as a people, and I'll rest in the faith that I don't have, and maybe you've got a little extra. That is one of the beautiful benefits of community. Just imagine this man. Um, imagine this man. Like, what if he had no hope left? I don't know. We're, we're just totally imagining. I'm not teaching the scriptures right now. What if this guy had no hope left and his friends were like, you know what, it's okay, we'll simply bring you with us? Or what if the guy was full of hope and faith and eager to see Jesus, but he just couldn't get there without them and he needed them to be willing? He needed to entrust his story to them and for them to hold it with hope and dignity. Do you remember two weeks ago we talked about the Bethesda pool and Jesus asks this guy, do you want to be well? And his response is, do you remember? Somebody, somebody help me out. I have His excuse. I have no one. I have no one, right? 
So think about contrasting that story. Now, granted, his hope was if I get someone to get me into the pool, and Jesus was like, I'm right here. The pool's not your answer. But his, his response, think about how tragic of a response that is. I have no one to take me. And, and contrast that with this story, right? He's got people to take him. He's got brothers walking along the path with him. There's such beauty there. Uh, what if, what if we, we moved in this direction, right? What if one of the primary goals of the church was to constantly bring each other toward Jesus? And that sounds so simple, but what if it was actually at the forefront of our minds? We talk constantly about what it means to be a church that is centered on Jesus and not all the lines that get drawn within God's community, right? But what if that was truly our goal, to point each other towards Jesus constantly, to bring each other toward Jesus, not with super spiritual language or our own agendas or savior complexes, but in humble love and hope of God's restorative action. Any way you look at this story, from any direction, the value of community is paramount here and it's central to the heart of Jesus. All right? So we've got the attitude of hope. The second one that I think is really crucial for us learning how to be advocates for one another, this is kind of a fun one. Um, it's a spirit of creativity. Um, boop, there we go. The thing about uh, the spirit of creativity is that if we approach caring for one another, and journeying together with the question, how can we break down barriers in, that get in the way of, of people encountering God's love and grace and healing, and who knows what it'll look like, then all of a sudden we start thinking in fresh new ways. Drawing religious lines, being argumentative, making assumptions, not asking fresh good questions, these things destroy our ability to creatively love each other where we are. But what if we listened more dynamically right? What if we listened and said, what are you actually going through so that I might envision and imagine how I can be an advocate with you? What if we asked each other those questions really well? What if we found out what each other's needs really were so that we could be sensitive and creative in pointing each other toward Jesus? All of us, as we journey toward Jesus, in this room and outside of it, all of our journeys are going to be different. We're going to have unique approaches. We're going to have unique experiences. We're going to have unique paths. But even as we, as we move toward Jesus, some things are going to be helpful for some of you and not helpful for others, right? That does not fit, friends, a programmatic-driven church. So that's one of the reasons that we don't drive this church founded on a bunch of programs. Uh, instead, we rely a lot on discipleship relationships to emerge, we're, and we're constantly asking, where is there a fresh need for conversation, for growth, for wholeness with Jesus? Right now, two of the conversations that we're asking, two of the things that we're asking about as we're trying to have a spirit of creativity, of what does it look like in a better way to address two things that we, that we really need to address at this church. And one is support for people who are uh, walking with aging parents. Massive issue within our community. Like, what does it look like to love and care for parents in all the complexities as they get older? So we're thinking about that because it's rooted in who we are here. We're also thinking about what does it look like to make space to talk more deeply about church trauma because it's affected so many people. What does it look like to have conversations that are freeing, that actually help us move toward compassion for one another, 
and, and, and toward, toward health in whatever way that looks like, but with real honesty and love. These, these things are being born and more, hopefully out of the idea that we have to look creatively to figure out how to be advocates for one another, okay? Uh, there's, there's so much room, and, and the, the kingdom of God, when it works best in relationships, is deeply contextual. We can't see how it's going to unfold. It's unexpected. The roof ripping off, the ceiling can't hold us moment, that is, that is very contextual. It's unexpected, but it's what the guy needed, and it's what the friend's could envision. And there's beauty there. Uh, I love that this story is so unique. So anyways, um, creating community and knowing that it'll mean getting, uh, getting creative in order to care for each other's unique needs is a big part of this story. And by the way, that starts with your awareness of other people's needs. Not you starting by saying, how can people creatively meet my needs? No church will ever be healthy if that's the question that you're taking away from this. How can we creatively meet the needs of each other in a way that moves us toward Jesus? Uh, there's such, yeah, which leads us to what's next, the final one. And that is, um, that is that the, uh, a final element of, oh, there we go, of advocating for one another is a posture of servanthood. Okay? And what I mean by a posture of servanthood What I mean by a posture of servanthood is a willingness to place another, uh, another's health and well-being above our own comfort for the sake of their well-being and God's heart. To dig up a roof, even though you're going to have to fix it again later, right? Um, to make a delicious meal for a friend. To send an encouraging text. To offer to watch their kids. To collect breakfast donation items for 175 teachers right, in order, and school staff here on Friday, in order to show them and remind them of their importance in God's eyes in caring for the young people in our community. To sort through used clothing and make sure that everybody in our community has enough later this month, right? To sit and listen and humbly learn about experiences that you've never been through in order to practice dignity and justice for other people. Uh, Choosing to spend your words for kindness to build up others instead of criticize. To invite your spouse to pray together. <laughs> to apologize to your family member for what went down so long ago. These are ways that we advocate for God's healing touch. As much as it depends on us. You cannot ask the question, who is God inviting me to help bring closer to Jesus, unless the answer will look like love and servanthood to that person. I want to say that again. You can't ask the question, who's God inviting me to help bring closer to Jesus unless the answer will look like love and servanthood to that person? Too many times, lessons like this have been used to say, yes, I'm going to tell that person exactly why they need Jesus no matter what it costs me. You see the problem with that, right? Because what it ends up doing is it ends up costing the other person a lot. The other person feels like they are a project of yours or ganged up on or there's a power dynamic or you're trying to fix them. So whenever we're asking this question, the posture of servanthood is absolutely crucial. We're not called to be condescending and judgmental in order to bring people to Jesus. We always joke on our leadership team about the, uh, that old uh, Onion article, you know, man not sure if he's being persecuted for his faithfulness or just a massive tool. 
Um, don't be a massive tool. Like, if you are looking around the world and saying, God, how can I, how can I be a mat bearer? How can I help bring people toward Jesus? It has to look like love and humility and care and servanthood to others. All right. Um, which brings us to the other side, which is great. And then we'll um, have just a, a few minutes for conversation. There is an incredibly important question that is equally important to all of this that we need to be asking, even though I'm only going to give you a couple of seconds on it because it's just so simple. But the question uh, is moving from the friends to moving to the man on the mat for a moment, all right? And so we've been in the perspective of the friends, but now we're going to be in the perspective of this man for just a moment. And I want to ask you the question, who does God want to work through in your life? Who is alongside you? Who has faith in God's work in you? Who has faith in God's work in you? There are people around you in your life who have the ability and commitment to help you move closer to Jesus, to enable your healing in some new way, your wholeness, all right? Not in a power dynamic way, but in a way that you're already drawn to. Yet for some reason, there might be a difficulty for you to embrace it. For some reason, it might be hard for you to just open the door, even though you, you sense that there's, that there's an opportunity to grow together in some really cool way toward Jesus. Um, you might not even have thought about it, but are there people that God wants to use to help you move toward wholeness? Who is God using already? And what might God want to do through them and along with them? And the real challenging question, are you resistant and why? Because if those people are actually people who are being drawn in this kind of character, then the beauty of the growth together is so wonderful. We can't look at this all as the givers. We have to be a people who look at this as receivers too. That's what real community looks like. Um, this entire experience speaks to the importance of true community. And that is what God created the church to be. Um, I like the definition of the church given by um, an English theologian named Andrew Kirk. Uh, and he says, he says this, What the New Testament means by the church is not an institution which owns property, performs rites, organizes meetings, or even one that plans strategies to evangelize unreached people. Rather, it's a group of ordinary people who, because they are experiencing the immense grace of a compassionate God, are learning how to overcome hostility between people, forgive and trust one another, share what they have, and encourage one another in wholesome and joyous relationships. What a beautiful image. Because that's compelling. People want to be a part of that when it's centered on Jesus. That is incredibly, oh, sorry. That's incredibly compelling. Now, just one final reminder. I, I titled this little talk thing, uh, Advocates and Adversaries. Because in the story, at the end, we see a growing resistance to all of this in the religious leaders at this point. To the advocates and the friends, Jesus sees their faith, and he's moved by their attitudes, and healing and restoration and forgiveness and transformation flow freely in that, all right? Um, and they celebrate afterwards. They're advocates for the unearned grace of God. They're advocates for God's goodness in the lives of the people around them. To the adversaries, though, the Pharisees, Jesus hears their critique, or he sees their critique, he senses the attitudes, and he responds by challenging them and noting how their religious righteousness would limit this guy's experience of God how they're stuck in their systems and they can't embrace what is so beautifully unfolding right in front of them. They're uncomfortable with the unorthodox ways in which God works. 
uh, and, and the ways that Jesus speaks and heals. Uh, so what will we do <laughs> when we watch Jesus act in these ways? Will we celebrate the beauty of undeserved grace? Or will we grumble that it doesn't seem to follow our rules? Right? Will we ignore God's movement taking place when it doesn't fit our structures? Or will we embrace and celebrate what's unfolding among ordinary people who are trying to follow Jesus? Will we look at the way that Jesus redefined the ways of God and become nervous? Or will the creative force of love lead us more toward Jesus and one another? Will we, like the teachers of the law, decide that Jesus is going just a little too far with healing and forgiving whoever Jesus wants to heal and forgive? Or will we join in it all as a community with awe and wonder and celebration? And when Jesus speaks directly to us in our community, will we let grace transform us? Will we let forgiveness take root? Will we rise as Jesus speaks healing to our hearts and our bodies and our spirits and our minds and our emotions? I hope so. Um, may God help us and may God make us whole together as a community. Amen? Jesus, we we have this sense that moving toward you is also connected to moving along with other people. Um, And I, I pray that you keep our eyes open to be on both sides of the community journey, to share in it as others offer and to offer it in ways that constantly point each other toward the work that you want to do. We know it's complicated. We embrace that, Lord. Uh, But we pray that you give us discernment through it. Amen.